Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Welcome to Hyros Gamos Radio, broadcasting out of the lower triangle, Tasmania, the descending tongue of grace, adrift in the freezing waters of Mem between mainland Australia and Antarctica, howling like the hanged man with a parking ticket. Hyros Gamos is the sacred wedding of matter and spirit, life and art, the Lima and Tao. We call upon the thinkers and feelers and knowers of the new aeon and promulgate the one truth and banish Coronzon to the dung chambers of the internet chat rooms. Our guest is one of the leading lights of the movement of the Lima, a lifelong student of the mysteries, a senior instructor of the AA, author of the Inward Journey series, Opus Alchemicum, and the forthcoming The Visions of the Pylons, Brother J. Daniel Gunther. Well, uh, first I'd like to welcome you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. This is, it's a real honour. Thank you. Um, Thank you for inviting me. So that's the honour, is being invited by you. Thank you so much. So, you are the son of a Baptist minister and you were raised in a Christian household. Uh, what were your first impressions when you first came across Crowley? Well, uh, when I first ran across Crowley, it wasn't the, I had already begun my quest for an answer to many of the questions that I had in my head from some couple of experiences that I had. Actually, I ran across the Golden Dawn material before I actually had read any of Crowley at all. And uh, that sort of, you know, I have to say that prepared me for what I was about to encounter. Although I still had a, a lot of questions, even after encountering the Golden Dawn material, I couldn't quite resolve in my head what was the point. Uh, where I'd been raised in a Christian household, I mean, uh, all of our life we'd been taught that the whole purpose was to... Uh, to be saved, our souls to be saved by Jesus Christ and avoid a, you know, an eternal life in hell, fire, and brimstone. And I was like, obviously, I rejected that at a pretty early age when I began to study. But my whole question, when I, I first, the first thing I encountered was Eliphaz Levi, and I read Transcendental Magic and some other books. And the question I had, though, was what is the point? Mm -hmm. I didn't have, I didn't have the language, the, the education about magic and the occult or any such thing. I didn't even, I had no idea what was the whole point of it. I mean, everybody was doing all of these things, but why? Even after I'd ran across the Golden Dawn material, I still was questioning why. And Crowley was the first one that actually answered that question, why? And that was, you know, to achieve the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And I said, aha, <laughs> aha, well, when I first read Crowley, of course, like most people, I didn't understand a bloody word of it, you know. Uh, but in my day, uh, back in those days, my first encounter with Aleister Crowley was the Confessions of Aleister Crowley. And there was hardly anything available on the market at that time. And that would have been, uh, I was uh, in California, and that was 1970 EV. And I just happened to run across his confessions in a public library. And, uh, but shortly thereafter, I was fortunate enough to come into contact with the, you know, they had just released the castle edition of magic and theory and practice. Mm -hmm. 
I bought it for $10 and took it home because I was fascinated by this guy, Curly. And um, a friend of mine's girlfriend saw the name Curly on the book that I brought home. She said, oh, I have a book by that guy. I said, really? She said, yes, it's called The Book of Thoth. She said, you can have it if you want to. I said, well, yes, I'll take it. And so she gave me that book. And for a long time, that was my sole uh, introduction to Aleister Crowley, was uh, The Confessions of Aleister Crowley, uh, Magic and Theory and Practice, and The Book of Thoth. And I set out on a quest for this thing called The Book of the Law that he constantly referred to. And since I was in the San Francisco area, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to, uh, uh, they had a couple of occult bookstores in, in California at that time. And one of which was owned by a guy named Jerry Kay. And when I walked in there one Saturday morning, he had just published a little saddle stitch pamphlet of the book of the law, which he sold for $3. I bought it and took it home. When I got home, I found out that the whole middle section was missing essentially all of chapter two. So I went back to California the next weekend. He said, Oh, here's, here's another one. And he gave me another one free. And I went home and that was when I actually could read the book of the law in its entirety. So all at one pop, I had uh, pretty much the confessions. I had the book of the law, the book of Thoth and magic and theory and practice. And that was about all I had for two to three years. Uh, and you asked me, what was my impression? Well, uh, I was impressed by Curley's literary genius for sure. Um, I didn't understand a bloody word of the book of the law. I understood very little of magic and theory and practice, uh, but I just kept it at my elbow and I kept reading it. And I thought one of these days, this has got to sink in, <laughs> you know, what this means. But I've talked to so many people over the years and they've told me that, what was your first impression of Curley? Well, I didn't understand a bloody word of it. Uh, that's not uncommon. You know, you have to have a pretty deep background if you just walk into Crowley uh, without announcements, so to speak. If you walk into Crowley, you have to go back and do your homework. You know, one thing that helped me a great deal was the fact that I had been introduced to the Golden Dawn material first. And so when Crowley referred to his initiation in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, I was pretty much with him. I was able to follow all of that. Fantastic, yeah. No, I think from personal experience, I, I agree. I <laughs> didn't understand a word of it to begin with. <laughs> I mean, I still still got a lot to learn myself. Um, well, so we've got the next star. Can you talk about how an aspirant has to deal with the four princes? Mm-hmm. You asked me you know, previously about this question, if I had dealt with this earlier than most people, mm. um, at least as far as one of the princes is concerned, that is uh, the one who's over Christianity, for example, uh, having been raised in a devout Christian home, I really had to come to terms with that. And that for me was uh, front and center. Uh, you know, if someone was raised in a non-religious home, for example, uh, the impact of these things initially is less than it is for someone who's raised in a religious home. As I mentioned in the Angel in the Abyss, it doesn't it doesn't give you uh, a, a, a card to escape the ordeal. Sooner or later, you have to come to terms with it. Because, like for example, 
in the United States, the influence of Christianity is so dominant, especially in the South, even if you're not raised in a Christian home, in society in which you live, you have to come, you will come into terms, you have to come into terms with it. Uh, you will encounter it. You know, like one of the great examples I give uh, here where I live on Sunday, we cannot buy wine or liquor in a store at all. You can, no, you can't. You can go to, uh, if you go to a, a restaurant that serves wine or liquor, mm. then you can order it with your meal, no problem. Mm. But the only thing you can buy on Sunday is beer, and only that after church lets out. Now, the hypocrisy of that is just really quite stunning. I mean, and the stupidity of it is beyond belief that lawmakers would find some kind of justification behind that. But in, in the, in the state, in the County, in the, you know, where we live, uh, on a Sunday, you have to wait until afternoon before you can go to the grocery store and buy a beer. All liquor stores are required by law to be closed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you can't buy a beer until church lets out. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah. Okay, that's right. So after church lets out, I can go to my grocery store and I can buy enough beer to get drunk, but I can't buy uh, any liquor or wine. And this is, to me, it's a perfect example of the utter stupidity and hypocrisy and the links that people will go to try to veil their vices in virtuous words, if you will. Uh, so those of us who live here, those, all of the people who live here, Regardless of what your religious belief, you have to contend with that. You have to contend with that. And you have to contend with the society, which is entrenched with Christian values and Christian mores. Makes it very difficult for someone who is, uh, you know, on our path. And people who live on the West Coast of the United States, it's a whole, uh, it's a whole lot easier for them. Uh, the laws are not nearly as restrictive. People are more open-minded. I like to travel in around the world, and I always go to places and say, hey, it's Sunday. Can I buy uh, some liquor today? And if they say yes, I go, well, 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 we're in a civilized country, <laughs> you know. And, I, and I'm only joking, of course, but I just, I'm just so appalled by the, the idiocy of the laws in some parts of our country. Um. But yes, I had to deal with, uh, when it came to the, one of the princes of evil, I had to really deal with it pretty quickly and pretty promptly because my father was one of those ministers. He was one of those ministers of the princes, one of the princes. Uh, and eventually you have to come to terms with all of them in our magical system. Uh, and it's a thing that is in a world where everybody wants to be politically correct. Uh, it's a thing that's often overlooked. But this is a very real ordeal, you know, as we face the Stalemites that uh, we just can't, you know, throw our arms open and say, oh, just everything is cool. No, everything isn't cool. These people, you know, we don't call them the slave gods for nothing. You know, these people enslave the world with their lies and their deceit and their false doctrines and their persecution of free people all over the world. And we have to confront that. And if we want to uh, attain these initiates, we have to come to terms with those things. 
and dealing with the four princes, you know, it's, it's a magical symbolism, but it is not, uh, as I've been so quick to say, this is, we're not just talking about your imagination here. We're talking about the reality of an ordeal and we symbolize it under these four princes, but it's quite real and we have to confront it and we can't wash it away with political correctness. Uh, it won't go away if we're going to establish the Lama in the world as the law of the free. Hmm. Beautiful words. Really, that's, it's, it's in, interesting, culturally interesting as well. I mean, I'm a bit lost for words, I have to say. <laughs> well, I guess we we'll, may as well move on to the next question. Um, what, what did you then do to make contact with the AA? Basically, what compelled you? Well, my case was somewhat, you know, a, a great deal different than most people. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, with karma. And uh, this isn't my first rodeo as a fellow mine. I did this in my last lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was but a mere 19 years old, out of the blue, unannounced, I had a spiritual experience that shook me to my core. And it made me realize I had just experienced something way outside the norm, way outside uh, the teachings, you know, of my father, of his church and all of it. And I realized this doesn't fit in that scenario. I have to find out for myself what I just experienced. Either, you know, A, I'm crazy. Uh, B, you know, um, you know, I'm mad. You know, that A and B, mad, crazy, whatever. You know, I'm hallucinating it is, you know, whatever. But I, somehow in the back of my mind, I knew it was real. You know, I, I mean, I knew it was real. I didn't have to have anybody question me. It was like, what happened? And so I began a quest. And I have reached outside of my, for the first time in my life, I reached outside of the boundaries of the religious teachings, which had been given to me. And I started looking. And I tried to find anything and everything that could explain in some way what I had experienced, which eventually led me to Eliphas Levy. And I read everything I could lay my hands on in those days. I read uh, Gene Dixon and Edgar Cayce and, I mean, just anything that was in the library, which was not very much, by the way. Uh, I kept looking. I kept searching. Well, at the time... Uh, I was in the music business. I played, uh, I played in an all original rock band, mm-hmm. played progressive music and the band was named Wakefield. And we went to California to try to seek our fortune. And in the meantime, I didn't forget my quest. I kept, while we were there, I kept looking and in the, all of, while, after we first went to California, it wasn't long after that I ran into the golden dawn. It was where I ran into the first references of Alistair Crowley. Uh, and I began to search for this mysterious body called the AA. And my search led me from the West coast to the East coast to the central United States. And there was nothing out there, uh, which was really quite depressing. I found the address, uh, of the OTO on a, pack of tarot cards, a Crowley Thoth tarot card. Mm -hmm. I wrote to that address and asked for any information whatsoever. And 
That request was totally ignored. I never received a response, not one, not an iota, not anything. So I mistakenly assumed, well, the order is dead. There is no such order anymore. But in my heart, I couldn't quite believe that. And my own aspiration really led me on to find everything I could to study and and to learn. And and I actually had another spiritual experience where the the inner voice told me, uh, you're on the right quest. And until you find that guidance, go forth on your own and do what you can. And so that's what I did. I went forth on my own uh, without any contact without anyone. And I actually started an, uh, an AA movement in the United States. Uh, as ignorant and as blind as I was, uh, there was so much I didn't know. And, uh, uh, and yet I was compelled to, to seek the AA. I believe that the AA was a true spiritual order. Whether or not it had an earthly existence or not, I was determined I was going to find it on the spiritual planes one way or another. And so uh, that's what I did. Mm. I started a movement and started working in the United States and trying to do my best to educate myself about the AA. Without a teacher, uh, uh, I didn't feel presumptuous, in fact, because I had really exhausted everything I could find, you know, to find someone, and there was no one. Mm. Until I had already started that movement, and and that uh, and that work in the in the order on my own led me eventually to Weiser's bookstore, where I met James Wasserman and Richard Gernon and Don Weiser, and had some wonderful conversations. About that same time, Marcelo Ramos Moda submitted the manuscript for his book, The Commentaries of L, and he had, of course, was a disciple of Carl Germer. And Richard Gernon contacted me directly and said, we, Weiser just received a manuscript from someone who was a disciple of Carl Germer. You were looking for a living descendant of the AA. That was the first thing we had heard, that there was somebody still alive who had a contact. And promptly... I sat down and wrote him a letter, introduced myself, and told him exactly what I was doing. And he promptly replied and said, I know who you are. I've been watching you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so it was. We began an introductory correspondence, and that's how I came into contact with him. And I was, they had given me a copy of his book in, in, uh, proofs to read long before the book was published and I read it and of course I it, I was thrilled at the time I finally found somebody that had a connection to Crowley through Germer back to Crowley and uh, to me it was just tremendously exciting at the time and uh, thus began my initial work uh, and eventually of course I uh, began to work under Moda as his student and as his American representative. And that's really where it all started. Uh, it ended very sadly, but that's where it began. And it, it's, it had a really, really happy beginning. Hmm. Unfortunately, it had an unhappy ending. Hmm. 
well, yeah, well, um, I guess, yeah, we, we don't need to talk about unhappy endings, but um, we, we'd like to ask you about, um, about Opus Alchemicum and how that came about. Mm -hmm. well, uh, yes, it was, uh, it was part of, you know, my own, my own magical work. Um, uh, after I left Moda, after I broke away from Moda, when he had lost his second lawsuit, and it was a pretty clear to all of us that, you know, he had, uh, that he was mad, um, I went off by myself, you know, heartbroken and really didn't know what to do, except continuing the great work as best I knew how. And it wasn't long after that, that, you know, I, I had a very numinous dream and, uh, I was living alone. And when I woke up from the dream, I, I took some pencils colored pencils and markers and so on. And I sketched what I had seen and, uh, I was quite amazed by it because it was full of archetypal symbols and, and full of alchemical symbols, of which I virtually knew nothing. Um, and I drew that picture and the next night it happened again and I drew another one. And, you know, as day passed and day passed, the images kept coming. And, but early on after about the second one, I was sitting in, contemplating the image that I had drawn a couple of nights before and I was staring at the image and all of a sudden I felt something change in me and I realized I was healing. I was tremendously heartbroken. I was tremendous. I was broken in pieces after, I mean, having, you know, to break away from one superior, a, a person that one loves deeply, uh, to see that person, you know, lose their grip on reality to the point. Uh, it, it was terribly, terribly saddening. But through this image, I realized it was it was almost a mandala image. In fact, it, it sort of had the character of a mandala. As I began to look at it, I felt something change in myself. I began to, I realized I'm healing. And as the images came night after night, and I would draw them down, draw them on the paper, I experienced, um, it went on for a while and they didn't happen every night, but they would happen periodically. And I would, I kept keeping scrap paper and, and colored pencils and markers beside my bed just in case. And I drew all these images and I would meditate upon these images. And through that came an alchemical process of healing. And it was through that that uh, that I overcame all this, the heartbreak of my relationship with my former instructor. Uh, I also was able to reconcile all of the questions of my own Christian upbringing, which I had not fully resolved as an initiate at that point, but I had to confront those, and so. I actually drew all of those pictures. I never had any intention whatsoever of having them published or anything. I just put them in my notebook. It was a bound book, actually, a uh, fairly large one. And after the last image was done, I, I put the book on my shelf and pretty much forgot about it for years until one of my students uh, 
asked permission to prowl through my library, which I said, well, that's fine. Go ahead. And he pulled it off of the shelf and said, look through it. And he said, what is this? And I said, oh, it's nothing. It's just something that I did when I was younger. You know, it was a part of my, it's probably not worth the paper it's written on. And, uh, and that was an honest assessment on my part at that time. Uh, he said, do you mind if I read it? I said, no. And he took it away. And he was staying with me at the time for a short time. And he took it up to his bedroom and he studied it. And when he came back downstairs, he said, I beg to differ. I think this is worthwhile. And uh, I said, well, you know, whatever. And we put it on the shelf and didn't think about it very much. He nagged me from time to time. What are you going to do with it? And I'm not going to do anything with it. And a few years passed and another student of mine came to visit and did the same thing, pulled it off the shelf. Only he really got excited <laughs> and said, you know, we have to do something with this. And I said, well, I will trust your judgment on this. And he said, do you mind if I take the book? And I said, no. And he took the book. And he took it home uh, to Australia, and uh, the rest is kind of history. They just uh, they came and said we're going to publish this, and uh, I had always visualized the book as being done as a sort of a uh, like an illuminated manuscript of the Middle Ages. And when I drew the pictures, those were really just rough drafts that I scribbled down, and I'd always intended to go back uh, and paint them you know, in detail, much, I'm a much better artist than Opus Alchemicum shows. And if you don't mind me saying so, I mean, it's, those are really pretty crude. They're just sketches. But what I found out was when I went back, uh, I tried to do that once I went back and I suddenly realized that the prana was all gone for me. Mm. I had already absorbed all the energy that I could from the experience and the drawings. And I just didn't have it in me. Uh, didn't want to. <laughs> and so I closed the book and put it on the shelf for years. And uh, as Stephen King said himself in his own, in his, his uh, afterward of the book, you know, I think the book sort of pushed itself into publication mm -hmm. uh, because it was, it truly was a genuine experience for the archetypes of the unconscious. And uh, like I said, I'd never had any intention of publishing. It wasn't my idea. Um, it was just something I went through and some of my students saw it and thought it needed to be shared. So history will judge that. Uh, the reaction to uh, many people who have seen it uh, was really quite astounding to me. I've been quite amazed at the emotional response that people have had to this. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, uh, it, it, it takes me, it took me back the first time <laughs> I saw somebody, you know, take the book and break down in tears. Um, I don't know what they experienced, but I do know that there's something in Opus Alchemicum that is beyond me. It's more universal. I was just fortunate to be one of the first, the first one to experience it. But when we're dealing with archetypes of the collective unconscious, we don't own those things. We experience those things. Uh, but they have a life of their own beyond our personal self. And if the book has done some good, then I am grateful for that. <laughs> They've experienced magic, I guess. 
Yeah, so, well, I guess um, you've kind of answered part, part of this next question, but um, maybe you can elaborate a bit. Uh, why is it that so many people on the path of initiation find expression for what is going on inside them through visual art? Visual art is one of the expressions of the collective unconscious uh, because uh, the, the self, as defined by Jung, is the image-making faculty of the psyche, and so it has always expressed itself, not only in, in words, but a, primarily in art throughout the ages. I mean, we have seen, we've seen that in, uh, in the Middle Ages and the alchemists. Um, sometimes their words are very cryptic, and their, uh, their illustrations, on the other hand, for those who have the wit to, to, to take a look at what they're really drawing, sometimes they're really quite expressive. Uh, other people find them cryptic none, nonetheless, but uh, the visual arts will often give us a way to express ourselves when the, the intellect will not. And I think that's because the visual arts, sculpture, painting, drawing, uh, that's an ashamic enterprise. It comes from the, the part of our, uh, of our soul that is not intellectual. We don't intellectualize that. We experience that, uh, and we we experience that through intuition, through uh, that part of our soul, which uh, is not, you know, cold and hard and analytical, but allows us to, to express the deeper aspects of things that we are experiencing. And, and I have always done that. For me, uh, as an artist, uh, painting has been a way which I can I can find an outlet for things that I couldn't possibly express in words. Uh, and artists have done that, you know, throughout all the years, whether you want to be, you know, talk about Picasso or uh, Blake. Blake was a genius in that. Um, I, I think it's hugely important and the, the visual arts are, uh, a lot of people overlook it, you know, especially if somebody said, well, I don't have any artistic talent. I can't draw anything. That doesn't mean you can't appreciate it. You know, there, there are people, you know, they can't draw, but nevertheless can experience art in the soul. Mm. And uh, art has always been part and parcel of the great work. If we go back in, I mean, to ancient Egypt, for example, uh, one could only imagine what it would have been like to see Egypt in its glory mm. when those temples and statues were, they were all painted. The, the, the countryside was alive with color and art where they brought the gods to life and they, where they couldn't do it in words, they did it in art. We still try to do that. I think, yeah. I think it's important. Very much agree. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so I guess we will move forward to um, writing the Inward Journey series. Were you surprised by the impact they have had and the change they have wrought in the world? Delightfully surprised. Um, happy. Uh, it's a it's a hard question. Am I surprised by the impact they've had in the world? Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, when one is writing a thing like that, you know, one doesn't do it because, you know, think, well, I'm going to write this book and, you know, 
I'm going to make an impact on the whole world. Boom. You know, it doesn't, it's not like that. At least it's not for me. Uh, you know, I write from the heart. I write from what I feel like I need to say. And I was very, you know, moved by the spirit, guided by the Holy guardian angel the whole way. Uh, in the second book, particularly my, my wife, Gwendolyn was, uh, such a help. Uh, she, is such an inspiration to live with. And she would, has a, I, I say she's my muse in a lot of ways. She's able to walk up to me and say, have you thought about saying so-and-so? And, I, and it'll just knock me over. And I realized that, you know, something is speaking through her mouth that I really should listen to. Uh, I did not, no, I, I didn't. You know, when I started out, you know, writing the books, when I started writing, certainly writing the first book, it took me 10 years to write because at the time um, I was raising three children. And so when you're raising three children, you don't have the time to devote to a project that I did with Angel in the Abyss when all my children were grown and left home. It took me 10 years to write the first book. It took me three to write the second. And, uh, uh, huge difference. Um, but no, I never sit back and thought, you know, boy, this is really going to, you know, do this or do that or do the other thing. One never knows. Hmm. One prays <laughs> that one's words are going to be significant. They'll mean something, um, that they will help people. That's really, uh, you know, what I wanted to do when I'm writing my book is to produce a work that will help people in their progress of the great work that in some way will, you know, answer a question, give a question, ask the question that they didn't think to ask, uh, in some way guide them uh, and enable them to move forward in the great work. That's really what we're all about. We're trying to help other people. If we're not helping anybody except ourselves, we're really not doing anything. So that's been my goal. And I've been very gratified uh, that my works have been accepted at, at the level they have quite surprising. Uh, when I first wrote, when I wrote the first book, I'd never thought about giving a lecture. It never occurred to me. And I suddenly got a, a, you know, an email and someone asked me if I would, you know, travel across the country, uh, to give a lecture. Uh, I was really quite taken back. I didn't really know what to think. And, more and more requests came in. Now I, you know, kind of expect it as, as, as part of the course, but uh, uh, all I've been trying to do is help other people, and I hope and I pray that I have. Thank you. If it's not too forward of me, um, I would like to say that uh, everything you've said so far is uh, very heartfelt, I think. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's making an impact. I mean, for the short time I've talked to you so far, you're making an impact on me already. So <laughs> I'd so like much. to thank you for that. Um, well, uh, let's move on to the next question. Hey, and where sure. are we? We are, like Crowley himself, you leave lots of breadcrumb trails in and things <laughs> in hidden plain sight in those books. Yeah. <laughs> well, I learned from the master himself. Uh, it's a technique that Crowley uses extensively and it's one that I always admired. Uh, he left many breadcrumbs for me and I always said, you know, it's, uh, 
Curly would leave these breadcrumbs. If you pick them up and follow them, you'll wind up at the witch's house. <laughs> uh, um, you never want to uh, take away the process of discovery from a student. You can you want to give them help, but you want to also let them find things on their own because there's nothing quite like that. You know when you. You see something and you read it in a book and you go, I did that with Curly. I would read that and think, what in the world does he mean by that? What could that possibly mean? And I would start on my journey. I would then start following out his clues. And this one would lead to that one. And that one would lead to another one. And sooner or later, the revelation would dawn. And it was such a wonderful feeling. And it was like, and finally I realized at one point, that old rascal, you know, he put the hook in my mouth back there. He led me to this point, but he did not take away my joy of discovery. It's a wonderful technique. It's a wonderful technique. And um, in that process of discovery, we as students, uh, we continue to educate ourselves in so many ways. And if the clue is planted appropriately, uh, the student will walk a certain path. He may go this way and that way, or she may go this way or that way. But sooner or later, if they follow out everything, they will reach, you know, the point where you hope they will reach. And the dawning of the, of the truth will come to them in their own way without you stepping in and saying, this means, you know, A equals B equals C. And that is... That would be so dry as dust if we did that. It allows everybody to have their own individuality. Mm -hmm. And I also think, I personally believe, I think the great work should also be not just work, but it should be fun, too. I think you should love the great work. I think you should enjoy the great work, mm -hmm. relish the great work. And when you have that moment, when you have that, you know, that eureka moment, there's hardly anything that matches it. You know, you, you'll remember it all your life. And I have many of such moments like that. And I, for all of those, I have to thank Alistair Crowley. Uh, could you talk about the work of the pylons? <laughs> okay. Well, <clears throat> as you know, you probably know now that <clears throat> the Visions of the Pylons is going to be published next spring. Mm -hmm. Your spring. I assume our, our autumn, your spring. Yes. Yep. My spring, your, your fall. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, it'll be, uh, probably March, April, mm -hmm. I guess somewhere around there. The manuscripts already at the, at the publishers. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> what is it particularly you want to know? That's another one of those things that it's a, it's a, one of those long shadows from my past. I did it a long time ago. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was still, uh, a student of Moda at that time, mm -hmm. and um, my student Richard Gurn was my scribe, and um, we began this astral exploration of the uh, the pylons of the ancient Egyptians, trying to understand what these mysterious realms were. And uh, toward that end, we uh, I developed a whole basically a new magical system to, uh, to do that. And we explored, uh, the first few pylons and he record as a scribe recorded 
what I witnessed and saw and spoke out loud. And we, we kept a detailed record of that ex experiment. And I submitted it to Marcelo Moda at the time after I had gone through the first four pylons and had a discussion with him about it. And he was, he was, he really liked the experiment and wanted to publish it in the future at some time. But of course our history ended rather abruptly, uh, shortly after I had done the seventh pylon. And so I took the, uh, uh, the manuscript of the pylons. I put it away on my bookshelf and forgot about it for next to Opus Alchemicum, perhaps. Exactly. Uh, uh, it was older than Opus Alchemicum. Yeah. Uh, when I did the visions of the pylons, I had not yet yeah. attained to the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angels. So it was it was quite a long time ago, and uh, again, it was tucked away on my shelf and. Uh, the very same student who asked the first question, he found that manuscript and said, what is this? <laughs> I said, oh, uh, just an experiment I did a long time ago when I was, you know, and he said, well, can I read it? <laughs> I said, of course you can. And uh, again, he came back and said, you really got to, you have to do something with this. And um, I, I saw his point only in that, you know, as we're trying to develop the, the, the new Aeon, uh, we're all explorers in, in a, a lot of ways. We are part of the, the task that has been left us by the prophet Curley was that we would unfold the new Aeon. Uh, we have to take everything we've been taught and we have to take it up a notch. And so my own instructor at the time had said the one thing about when you do an experiment, the important thing is what a scientist does. He publishes the results of his experiment for good or bad, good or bad, you know, and that's why he had wanted to publish it originally. And he said, you know, for whatever it is. And he said, you don't publish it and, and put your motto on it and hide behind your magical motto. Like some people want to do today. You put your earthly name on it and say, I'm to blame for this, right? I learned that from him, and that was, you know, good or bad, you take responsibility for what you say, mm -hmm. and you put your name on it. And if somebody wants to blast it and say, this is a piece of junk, well, they know who's responsible, you know. It's got J. Daniel Gunther's name on it, so he's responsible. He's the one uh, who said this, right or wrong. And... That's the way we were taught, and that's the way I teach, continue to teach my students today. Whatever you do, if you want to put it in the public, you've got to put your name on it. And I've had people tell me, uh, you know, ask me, would you uh, write answers to questions for this journal submitted by members of the order? And I said, well, yeah, if they will put their earthly name on their question. And... Time and time again, believe it or not, what do you think happened? They won't do it. Mm -hmm. They don't want to put their name on it, you know, and I said, well, then I'm not going to put my answer to it. Unless you're willing to step up to the plate and say, I'm the one who asked this question. Smart question, dumb question, whatever. It's me. I ask it. I accept responsibility for it because I'm going to answer it in my earthly name. I'm not going to put a magical motto on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what I think. And so that's what we do as, if you will, you know, uh, 
the aim of religion, the method of science. And we're, we're going in with the method of science and trying to put our best face on our experiments. And that's really what the visions of the pilots was. It was an experiment and I'm going to present it to the world and say, this is what I did. Uh, these are the conclusions I reached, uh, rightly or wrongly. This is it. And, uh, that's, that's what's going to happen with it. So, uh, I, I look forward to it. It's been fun going back and past and reading it for the you know, first time in a long time. But uh, we'll see. Uh, a lot of people are interested in it. When I first made the announcement down in Austin, Texas, uh, you know, back in the 1st of September, uh, I was really quite surprised how many people were quite interested in, uh, in the subject matter and the methodology because it's really quite a new thing. And hopefully that'll be a self-explanatory when somebody reads the pilots. One of the first questions that I was asked in Texas was, what are they? Mm-hmm. What are these? Pilots? Well, that's what the visions of the pilots hopes to answer. And to prompt further exploration of these mysterious realms. Uh, the quest is not done. Uh, there are people right now planning exploration of the pylons to continue that work and to further the exploration so that we can have a much broader record. And I'm pleased about that. Do these pylons refer at all to the pylons that appear in say Liber Pyramidos? No, I mean, Crowley, when he wrote Liber Pyramidos, for example, when he talks about passing through the pylons, he uses Egyptian terminology a lot of times for his, his own symbolism and in in that ritual where the candidate passes through various pylons and explores he got this he got the idea actually uh from the ancient egyptian manuscripts of the book of Amduat, which is one of them which is the book of of pylons or the book of gates which is another one uh, he's borrowing terminology and using it toward his own magical ends um and uh, and there's no problem with that. I mean, certainly he was inspired by that, but are they the same thing? No, they're not the same thing. Um, the pylons, uh, in, in the ancient Egyptian terminology, they visualized that, uh, at sunset, the God Ra would enter his boat and pass through the 12 hours of the night by passing through these 12 pylons. And, uh, coming out on the other side, uh, it became a very uh, iconic religious document. In fact, the uh, the pylons as it exists in ancient Egypt, unlike the Book of the Dead, uh, of which no two are alike, uh, the accounts of the pylons became a very uh, strict and static uh, religious document that occurs, that was occurred on several tombs and there weren't massive deviations like there is in the book of the dead. Um, so here, I guess I'm going a long way about answering your question, but basically it was Curly taking the inspiration and the symbolism of the pylons and putting it into terms with a a modern magical, uh, document, but the experience that one experiences, for example, in Liber Pyramidos versus the experience of going through the, the pylons themselves. They're not the same. <laughs> All right. 
Um, well, uh, yeah, so the next one, um, the starry abode is the night, the underworld, but also the unconsciousness of man. Should the experiences of the Jawat be different for each of us then? Yes, they are. They will have certain elements in common. If you were to do it, I were to do it, uh, say my wife Gwendolyn was to do it, there perhaps would be certain things in common, but there may be points that are very, uh, very different for each of us because they are they do represent, the pylons represent uh, the collective unconscious. The elements of the collective unconscious, as long as they're unconscious, they really have no form or um, or shape or anything. Only when they become conscious and become contaminated with consciousness do they are they you know uh, understandable or are we capable of explaining them? But in order to become conscious, of course, they have to come into contact with a human being, and we're all different. And each of us have different talents and different abilities and different observations and so on. All of the, the, the same archetypal component manifesting itself in three different beings, three different human beings, uh, could manifest in diverse ways. They may have certain things in common, but it may not seem that they do. The truth be told, you know, uh, we know that we know a lot of work is, you know, we talk about the collective unconscious, but as far as the pylon is concerned, we haven't yet done enough experimentation on that to reach any kind of consensus of what is uh, probable or potential. Uh, we know, for example, I know, for example, in my own exploration of the, of the pylons, that uh, the pylons themselves open gateways, the word pylon means gate, um, to not only the Sephiroth, but the uh, ethers, as well as the Lima. And to what extent, we don't really know. Um, what I experienced was something of a, a comparison to uh, when we when we're talking about uh, gateways through time and space wormholes, for example, uh, there's something akin to that going on with the pylons. Uh, it's very powerful realms, uh, but we haven't had enough exploration. We haven't had enough study of those realms to be able to catalog and you know understand exactly what's going on. Which I'm, which is why I'm excited about you know other people taking up the work and doing it. But I'm very careful in, in my introduction to the visions of the pylons, telling people that students should not expect their visions to resemble mine exactly, in any way necessarily. Uh, my own instructor told me at the time, the visions are unique to the aggregate of stars invoking. And by aggregate of stars, he meant a human being. Each of us are different. Each of us are stars in the body of Nui, and we're going to have our own unique experiences. And so what we're going to do, we continue the experiments. We're going to catalog these results and we're going to see what tallies. But uh, I fully expect individuals to have individual experiences that they may not even resemble mine in any way. We'll just wait and see. Fantastic. Um, well, to finish off, um, we've got one last question for you. Um, how did your exploration of primary Egyptian texts inform these workings? Well, 
it's informed all of my work through my whole life. Uh, I began studying Egyptology when I was 17 years old. Um, I used to practice my uh, writing hieroglyphics by taking notes in high school, writing hieroglyphic, uh, which was a little troublesome sometimes. Um, but as I grew older, I always, the study of Egyptology was always, you know, front and center with, you know, a lot of things I did, I was fascinated by it. And uh, of course, when I encountered uh, Crowley and Thelema, and I was delighted to see the stellae revealing, of course, and it's like, whoa. Um, and I began to study that. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with a system where Egyptian symbolism figures pretty prominently. And uh, so I never abandoned my, my study of Egyptology. And I found that the ancient Egyptian system was a very spiritual system. It ran very deep. It's often very misunderstood. Because uh, I run into people who say, well, the ancient Egyptians worshipped animal-headed gods. And say, no, they didn't. Uh, that's just your misconception, you know. They had to. They represented uh, the deity with animal-headed beings because they did not believe it was possible to represent uh, the divine with just one form. But they recognized the manifestation of divinity in all things: air, water, sand, earth, fish, plants, animals, everything. The world was alive, and I always held that. You know, as I began to study the ancient Egyptian text. And I found that the writings of the ancient Egyptians were not contrary to the things that I was pursuing in this life. That often they would open up doorways for me and explain things. And I've often also found uh, using the language of that ancient culture uh, has helped me to explain difficult things in our own system. As I've been at pains to say in my book, it's not to say that I believe that, uh, you know, when we say Osiris, we, we can't be foolish enough to think that the Osiris known to us is the same God known to the ancient Egyptians or Horus or any of the others. But these are living gods. They're living things, and they manifest in the world of living reality, and they change based on the world that we live in. And so the, the, the Horus that is known to us, today that manifests in uh, 1904 at the writing of the book of the law is not the same Horus known to the ancient Egyptians who lived on the Nile, but it's the same God. It's the same God as the, the gods of hoary antiquity are very capable because they are uh, archetypes of the collective unconscious. They're able to intrude upon our modern consciousness in totally unexpected ways. You know, uh, the ancient cry is still good, you know. Pan is not dead. He liveth Pan. And so it is with all the gods. They are not dead. They live. And we bring them into our world to enhance our world, to help us explain uh, our own quest and our own, our own path. And I've tried to do that with, with Thelema, not because I believe that Thelema is a resurrection of some ancient Egyptian religion. It isn't. But that some of these motifs have lived on through centuries and still affect our lives as we live it today. And with that, for convenience or whatever, we call it the eon of Horus, the eon of the child. That's where we live now.
and it has helped me understand it and explain it to other people. I'll take that. That's a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much for coming on. No, I'm so happy you invited me. We hope you've enjoyed the show. None of the opinions expressed by hosts or guests reflect the policies of OTO Australia, its members or officers. This is your host, Sora Amaris. Love is the law, love under will.